If you have your bulletins, I encourage you to take your sermon notes out. I don't do it every week anymore. I try to do it every few weeks so that you have some context to pull it from. What I'm sharing with you is out of an enormous amount of research and writing and spending time with God and listening to His voice and spending time in the Word and I'm communicating it to you in 30, 35 minutes, and you're trying to process that. And every so often, I want to give you some tangible things to hold on to so that you can know where we are and where we're going. Last Sunday morning, about 10 o'clock in the first service, I realized that the context of what I was in in 1 Peter chapter 3 was going to be at least one Sunday, probably two. And then I quit at that particular time, knowing I needed to move on to this particular Sunday. And somewhere about Wednesday or Thursday, as I was putting this message together, I realized it's going to be another week yet. So we've been some time and will be some time together in 1 Peter chapter 3 in the first seven verses talking about the larger context of marriage. I love the Word of God because it is so rich and alive and relevant. It was written over 2,000 years ago but still speaks to us today and I'm continually fascinated by that. I hope I never ever lose my love for the Word of God and the fact that it's rich and it's powerful and it speaks to us today. It gives us life, it addresses every issue you can imagine but it's just as relevant now as when it was written. And hopefully you gained that as well as we continue to explore this particular subject. We're talking about specifically marriage in this context. Now, a lot of other verses that do. I'm going to try as best as I can to stay in these few verses here in 1 Peter chapter 3. Two things I want to make sure I say. If you've been through the pain of a, a marriage that has not gone the way you planned, you stood before a pastor, you said for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part, and it didn't happen. My intention is not to remind you of that pain. Please understand, I'm not here to remind you of that pain. The second group that I want to talk to this morning is singles who every once in a while want to check out when I do a ministry or a message on marriage. And because uh, it's hard, they, they want to get married, a lot of other things, and I'll address that in a second this morning. But Again, my intention is to not ever hurt anyone or have you by the lie to be fulfilled, you have to be married. And that's not true. You'll, you'll feel that, and many will tell you that. You may think that, and our society points that way, but it's not true. You can find fulfillment in a hundred different ways, and obviously specifically with Christ. And so I just say that because I know when you hear messages on singleness or on marriage, and you're single and not married, and, and many of you are okay with that, I just don't want to never let you buy the lie that to find ultimate fulfillment, I have to find a mate. That's not true. Last Sunday morning, I talked to you about a number of things. I started with a question, and I asked you, how many of you think it's easier to get married than stay married? And all of you said, yes, it's much easier to get married than to stay married. I want to ask you a couple more questions this morning. How many of you, when you were going to ask that person to marry you, were surprised by the fact they said yes? Any of you? That when you asked them, they said yes. And you were surprised by that. You didn't see it coming. You hoped that way. You prayed that way, but you weren't sure. How many of you guys, if you're willing to admit it, had to ask three or four times before they finally said yes? Anybody here this morning like that? Hopefully all of you guys, how many of you guys did the typical ask the father's permission to marry? where you really went that whole level of what you ought to, seeking their permission, asking their permission. My son-in-laws did it. One asked me. The other one asked both of us as a couple, and I thought that was a cool addition to the process, taking us out. And, and then I'm sure every one of you guys have that story of 
what the father-in-law said to you or what your new dad's going to say to you about the fact that you're about to marry my daughter and I carry a weapon on a regular basis. And if you ever hurt my daughter, you will answer to me and Jesus, most likely on the same night. You've all had those stories, right? I had one guy bring out a 45 bullet, set it on the table, and as the son-in-law or new son-in-law was about to ask him, he said, if you ever put a hole in my daughter's heart, I will put a hole in your heart. I mean, just all kinds of things that dads say, right? I'm still surprised by the fact that so many of, uh, so many of you said, oh, okay, I'll still go through with this. With all the things that you must have heard somewhere along the way, and the stories are endless. I, I, I'm always intrigued by those kinds of stories or proposal stories. A few weeks ago in the bulletin, I started a contest. wanted to see if I could get some kind of a feedback as to some proposal stories that were out there. And I didn't see them. I had them sent to one of my secretaries, and I said, you pull together an independent committee, and, and you read through them, and you choose the one that you think is the winner of the contest. And we had that winner here with us this morning. Tim and Amanda is going to come up here on the stage. And, and they won. <laughs> Someone knows your story? I don't know. Tim, you and Amanda, we did your wedding. I did it out Luther Lynn, right? We didn't rain, the mist. It was just one of the most beautiful ceremonies. I love weddings. Had one yesterday, and everybody was just crying and all that kind of stuff. And it was an amazing moment as you came down the aisle and all that jazz. How long have you been married, Tim? Uh, <laughs> forever. Yeah, forever. <laughs> Now, that's three, how long you're going to be married. Yeah, that's right. Three years. Three yeah. years. I put mine on the inside of my ring. It helps me remember, Tim. So it's a good idea if you're ever trying to remember that date. It's a tough question. All right, I know. All right. And uh, you asked Amanda to marry you, and obviously you said yes, and a lot of people want to know why, but evidently you said yes. Tell us just in, in 30 seconds your story of um, how you proposed and what that looked like. Yeah, so we were in a boat that I made, actually. Uh, there it is. Uh, it took me a couple years to build, and I wasn't sure if it was going to float. That was the first time we went out in it. Um, <clears throat> if the boat floats, the marriage floats. But anyway. Uh, that was good. Yeah. It was at Moraine, uh, 4th of July, 2008. And uh, I wanted to show her a new, uh, a new magic trick that I just learned how to do. I was like, yeah, check this out. So uh, I have this little shoestring here, which just tied itself in a knot. There we go. And I said... Uh, let me see your ring. That was the silver ring thing. All right. How many of you know the silver ring thing? Mm -hmm. All right. Promise that you'll stay pure until marriage. Mm -hmm. And uh, you take that ring, you put it on, you wear it, and then right before you get married, you have the opportunity to take that off and give it to someone. So you did that. Well, she took it off early. Yeah. yeah. But uh, <laughs> to replace it with another ring. But here we go. Um, so to make this ring disappear, what I did was uh, put that in your palm there. It's still there. Can everybody see that? The ring's still there? Okay. Um, and then you wrap this string around the back of my wrist, and I'll uh, have you hold down on both of those ropes. Good. All right. Now, if that ring were to come out of my hand, you'd have to go over the top of my wrist and slide down and go past your hands, and that didn't happen. So I say a little abracadabra, and voila, it's gone. And then, uh, let's see, well, there it is, a shiny new diamond ring. <laughs> Tim and Amanda, as the winner of our contest, you get a night out at Red Lobster on us.
You're going to read the bulletin now, aren't you? To see what else is in there. Last Sunday morning when I announced that number 200 gets to have a wedding free, there were girls all over the audience going, when is my wedding? When can I do it? How can I calculate that in? I said to one girl, you're 199. Get two more people or one more person in front of you, and you're it. It's an amazing day. When you say yes, you go through the process, you plan all the brides' magazines, all the events. And I said to this couple yesterday when I watched them come down the aisle, all the tears, all the emotion, all the plan, all the preparation culminated in that moment. And everybody was overwhelmed. But I say is what I have in your sermon notes this morning. What you have to always remember is that weddings are for a day. Marriages are for a lifetime. And I've seen more couples invest an incredible amount of money into a day, but not always enough into a lifetime. And my heart's desire is that everything we can possibly do, whether it's once a year or every few years, to talk about the context of marriage, especially when it fits in the context of the messages that we're going through, is that you understand how much God has for you if you're willing to invest the time and the energy that goes with that. Last Sunday morning, I began with a statement, and I said, we believe in the biblical definition of marriage. And if indeed we do believe in the biblical definition of marriage, which we do, we want that to be lived out. You see, it's one thing to believe your values or vote your values. It's another thing to live them out. And that's way more than just simply believing that marriage is between one man and one woman. It's so much more than that. And God gives us some clear definition as to what that entails in this context. One of the presidents years ago was asked, what do you think is the greatest threat to our society? And many would have assumed he would have said terrorism or financial ruin. You know what he asked? his answer was? The deterioration of marriage and the family. It's probably one of the greatest threats to our society. And I believe many of us felt that as we saw the impact of that in our nation's election just this week. Scripture deals with marriage on a number of passages. We're specifically dealing with one. So I want you there in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at the first five verses or first four verses today and then move on next Sunday morning into verse 7. Peter says here, wives, in the same way, subject yourselves or submit yourselves to your husbands so that if any of them didn't believe the word, they would be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your life. Beauty shouldn't only come from what we see on the outside, such as elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great value in God's eyes. Verse 7, husbands, in the same way, be considerate, live with your wife, treat her with respect as a weaker partner, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing would hinder your prayers. I pointed out last Sunday morning, and it's in your sermon notes, that Verse 1 comes within the context of two issues. We so often look at one, the issue of submission. God, being a God of order, said, Wise, I, I'd like for you to willingly place yourself under the authority of someone else. Demonstrated all the way through Scripture. Jesus did it to God. Jesus did it to the Trinity at the beginning of time when Jesus said, I will be the one that will sacrifice my all. Placed himself to that, in that context. You and I as believers in Christ are asked to submit ourselves to God. Peter tells us that we ought to submit ourselves to those in authority over us. In this case, the wife is asked to place herself under the authority of her husband. It doesn't infer blind obedience. It doesn't infer inferiority. It doesn't even say that she's less valued or less of an opinion. Hopefully, as a couple, you make decisions together, and you walk through that decision-making process together as a couple. Submission, because God is a God of order, simply says it's a conscious decision to place myself under the authority of someone else. In this case, it is the husband. 
Peter and Paul both remind us, and I wanted to make sure that I pointed it out because both of them are clear on that one simple word when he says you are to submit yourself to your own husband and not to everyone else. And some have misused that section of Scripture and made it think or made us think that all women are subject to all men. Or to submit to them. And Peter and Paul both, interestingly enough, make sure they say the word to your own husband. Notice the word obeyed isn't in there. Can you imagine how many men down through the years and all the marriages that I've done have come up to me somewhere before the preparation process or at the rehearsal saying to me, now you are going to say love, honor, and obey, right, to her? I've heard it dozens and dozens of times. You are going to make sure in those vows she's going to love, honor, and obey me, right? No. Love, honor, and respect. Submit. But obedience isn't in there. That's for your kids when God brings them along. But I'm telling you, in all my years of ministry and all my years of doing marriages, I can't begin to tell you the amount of guys that have come to me, usually many times at the rehearsal, saying, now make sure you have love, honor, and obey in there. That's not what God's Word says. It's respect. Now, obviously, I encourage them to earn that respect. They should receive it because that's the position, as we are to respect those in authority over us who may not always earn it, but we're to respect the position. And that's obviously what he tells us, the beauty of a great relationship where it's not even noticed is when it's earned as opposed to having to do it because I'm supposed to. The second thing that I wanted to make sure that you understood that when Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 3, 1, wise in the same way, submit to your husbands, I believe that he's also saying within the context of 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, when he said, live such a good life among those who don't believe that they'll be won over by your behavior when they see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. Peter gives us one of the most beautiful illustrations by giving us an example of what it's like for a godly wife to an unbelieving husband and by her behavior and demeanor winning him to Christ. In a broader context, one of the most attractive qualities about faith in Jesus ought to be the difference Christ makes in our behavior, right? I mean, one of the things that ought to attract people to you, and again, I, 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 I don't know where you're all at spiritually, but my hope is that all of you know faith, all of you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've committed your life to Him, and one of the most attractive things that people ought to notice about that is the difference that Jesus has made in your life. If you're grumpy and cranky all of your life and claim to know Christ, there are not a whole lot of people say, wow, that's what I want. One of the most beautiful things about the changes that Jesus makes in us is it changes everything about us. Not only our eternal destiny, but how we live this life. How we react to people, the love and the joy and the satisfaction that we find in so many things, even if we don't agree with what's going on around in life, there's something inside of us that sustains us and carries us through life. Be in my shoes when I do funerals on a regular basis, three times as many funerals as I do weddings. To stand there at a casket and see a, a, a man or a woman who doesn't know Christ, and they, they turn around, they look at me, and their eyes are empty and hollow. They don't know where their mate is. They don't know where they've gone. They don't know what's going to happen. They have nothing to hold on to. They're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but they're walking to it and through it without any hope. Jesus makes such an amazing difference in our lives. We handle life different. We handle people different. We handle death different. And all of those things should be evident. And hopefully somewhere along the way, someone has come up to you and said, wow, I can't believe how you're handling this or that, or you walk through that, or your smile is always there, you're just happy with life. 
And then that gives you the chance to say Jesus made all the difference in the world to me. And it just gives me a different perspective on life. And, and by the way, let me share that with you. And Peter uses this example here within the context of, uh, of a marriage, but it goes beyond that. One of the greatest places, though, to demonstrate the difference that Jesus makes in your life is in your home and to the next generation. As a mom and dad, we have a hundred different privileges, but one of the greatest privileges as a mom or a dad is to show your kids how to live and how to love. Isn't that awesome? That you and I as parents have the opportunity to show our kids how to live and how to love. So that when they go into life and go into their relationship and into the next context of their journey in life, they say, oh man, I remember what it was like to watch my mom and dad. I, I did learn how to live. I learned how to dealt with, deal with life, but I, I learned how to love. One of the best things you can ever do for your kids is to love your mate. And let them know that. Let them see that. Let them sense it. Can't imagine the amount of times that I've heard, man, he is just like his dad. Who's just like his dad. He like hugging an oak tree and doesn't ever tell me he loves me, doesn't show it, doesn't demonstrate it. And they're carrying into this next generation or this next segment of life what they've seen in the past. And they'll use that stupid phrase, oh, I am what I am. Good night, you're not Popeye. <laughs> well, that's the way my dad was. Well, like, that's a great excuse. Unless your dad was a, a, the, the guy who demonstrated and showed. Now, I'm not saying you have to change your personality. All I'm saying is Jesus ought to make a difference. And you and I as parents get an opportunity to show the next generation what a difference he's made. And that it not only makes a difference in my life and how I deal with life and how I deal with death, it makes a difference in how I love. And they get a chance to see that. I shared with you last Sunday morning that I have so many wonderful experiences of gals who knew Jesus and the mate didn't and they had the opportunity to, to lead him to Jesus. And then when I'm doing the wedding, they... They're, they're united to that, and I'll go back in and, and almost every wedding, and I'll read this First Peter passage. And some of the times when I've known the story, it just lights you up because she really did live Christ. She stayed pure. She really committed herself to Jesus, and, and that was so attractive to that guy. But I got more stories on the other side of a gal who said, I, I'm, I know I can lead him to Jesus. I, I know it. I I, I know I'll lead him to Christ. I know I shouldn't date. I know I shouldn't date a non-believer. But I, I'm telling you, I, I'll lead him to Jesus. Just give me time. And there are times that I do that. Now, I've said to them, I will not marry you together if he's a non-believer. But they'll say, I can get him. I can, I can win him. And I've got way more stories on that side where they didn't. And they went someplace else to JP or another church or someone else and they found themselves miserable and lonely and, and sometimes even falling away from Christ themselves. If you're a parent raising daughters, I encourage you to encourage them to use their standards in context of the Word of God. Not that means every 14-year-old is going to date everybody who's only a believer. When they get to that process or that, that whatever that may be, some of you, you're going to let your daughters date when they're 16 and some of them when they're 63. I don't know whatever you're rules are you know when you're old enough to do social security then i'll let you get married but everybody has a different rule and so i'm not here to tell you when you ought to let them date but i'm saying when when you know it there at that stage of getting ready to date my encourage them as much as possible 
within the guidelines of the Word of God. It's not like your opinion. It's, it's what God says. It's what works best. God knows His design. He knows what works best. He loves us like crazy. And He wouldn't tell us this if it wasn't true. Encourage them to date believers. Now, is every believer a Prince Charming? <laughs> no. That's not the issue. All I'm saying is you've set yourself up in, in such a, a, a sad, difficult situation when you marry a non-believer and it goes against God's word. You and I are body, soul, and spirit. It's in your sermon notes this morning that body is what you see, the soul is who you are. The spirit is that part that was meant to connect with God. And when you don't have that connection with your mate and that spiritual connection, you've got one whole third of you that isn't able to connect within the confines of marriage. Your body's will and your soul's will, but that's so much of you that doesn't. And the gals that I see sitting in audiences that I've watched for the last number of years of my life with tears running down their face, and they wish so desperately that their husband was there to share the joy of what they're learning in Christ and the things that they're seeing in Jesus, and they can't. God is not a killjoy. God is not angry at us. God loves us like crazy. And he said, I just want to tell you what works best. Listen to me, will you? Not just to me. He's just saying, listen to me, he said. I'll tell you what works best. He goes on to tell us what works best. In his confines here, that gals, even if you come to faith Christ, you're already married. That's who he's talking to. If you're already married and you come to faith in Christ first, you have an incredible opportunity to lead them to faith in Jesus that you have found. But Paul reminds us of the other side. He said, I just want to remind you, though, that if you do come to faith in Christ, that's not your license to leave. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 15, 12 and 13 specifically, Paul said, if any brother or sister comes to faith in Christ and your mate is willing to stay, let him stay. You don't have license to divorce. I've had some say, well, look at First Peter. He said it doesn't work. God said it can't be unequally yoked, and I come to faith in Christ. He or she's not. I'm leaving. God said stay. That's never licensed to divorce. Let's get back to the text. Verse 2. So what works best? If you've got a non-believer, you're married in that situation, and you as a gal come, faith to, come to faith in Christ, what works best to help them understand what has happened to you? Well, he tells us what does work best in verse 2, when they see the purity and reverence of your life. When they see the purity and reverence of your life, notice that he sounds a lot like James by just simply saying, actions speak louder than words. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't witness, not at all. But the point here is that the power of a godly life lived out, sometimes without words, is better. I've had gals down through the ages that left tracks everywhere, that turned the radio up loud, that made them watch Christian TV all the time, that was constantly pushing salvation, pushing Jesus, pushing church, pushing Scripture and religion, and it didn't work. Peter just simply says, you know what, maybe it would work better. If you lived it, if they saw it, don't necessarily preach it. Doesn't mean you shouldn't. But your unsaved husband usually won't come to faith in Christ through nagging or arguing. God says what works best, purity and reverence of your life. Look at verse 3. He goes on to describe that. When he said your beauty shouldn't come from only outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Remember a, a number of months ago, I said it before, every time you look at Scripture, you need to see context, historical context, 
What does all of Scripture say about the subject, and then how do I apply it? This is one of those examples at times where churches and believers may have taken some things out of context. There are some churches who have taken this verse to mean that if you're going to be a biblical or a godly woman, you shouldn't wear makeup or jewelry. That is not what he is saying. I grew up in an alliance church, and in some churches, and sometimes in the 40s or 50s, there were a lot of alliance churches that taught that, and, and they just simply said, if you're really going to be a godly woman, you shouldn't wear pants to church, shouldn't wear slacks to church, you shouldn't do makeup, and you shouldn't do jewelry. That's not what he's saying here. Not what he's saying at all. It's what some have said it means. That's not what he says at all. He just simply says that inside beauty can be more attractive than outer beauty. So let's concentrate more on that one. And never use outward beauty as a cover-up for the lack of inner beauty. Never use outward beauty as a cover-up for the lack of inner beauty or what do I want to invest in to make myself what God has designed me to be. You, you and I both know that people can do that with their homes, right? They can make it look like a, the, the Taj Mahal and no life and love in it at all. It looks great. Matter of fact, you walk into some homes, you feel like you can't touch anything. You ever been in one of those homes where you feel like it's a library and uh, you, you can't touch anything, but you don't find a lot of love and laughter and life in it? I've seen people that way with churches. Incredibly ornate, beautiful decorations, but no life. If I had to choose, which one do you think I would choose? I'd choose life over ornateness. There were a lot of people that weren't thrilled with this sanctuary. Well, it looks like an auditorium. Yeah, well, it does. I like this, and they'll have, you know, all kinds of images in our head as to what a, a church ought to look like. And those are beautiful. I, I've gone to some of them. I've done weddings in some of them. They're magnificent. All I'm saying is if I had to choose between external beauty and ornateness or life and energy in a church, I'll choose life and energy every time. And some of that stuff. Notice that he clearly tells us what works best. An inner beauty, that inner self that is beautiful and valuable in God's eyes. Now, the issue of beauty in your sermon notes can be pushed to one of two extremes. One is, of course, the push for perfection. It drives girls to anorexia and bulimia faster than anything else. We idolize it in our culture. We put people in categories because of it faster than anything. Barbies, skinny, tall, slender. I mean, the list is endless. We push girls are in beauty contests now at two and one year old. We're trying to make them this or that or somebody else or make them a little Barbie doll so that everybody will think there's something. And the list is endless. And, and for the last 15 or 20 years, bulimia and anorexia has been one of the big, biggest drivers in girls being unsatisfied, and we push, and we make it the, the, the model of perfection for everything, and it's not. Think back to high school. Pretty kids hung around with pretty kids. Sports people hung around with sports people. Nerds hung around with nerds. I mean, but what I have found out, that life is still like high school. That we end up associating with people that look like us or act like us and all of those things instead of seeing way beyond the outer for who they are on the inner side. Now, of course, there's the other extreme. Lack of concern and care. For you know what? Doesn't matter. And letting themselves go. There's a book that I read years and years ago, and I use it now for every seminar I ever teach on premarital counseling. It's in a book called His Needs, Her Needs. Written by Willard Harley. Who wouldn't read a book by the name of Harley? I mean, I, his name's Harley. I'm reading a book. 
what he did is, is took a survey of, a, of, of numbers of couples, dozens and dozens of couples, and he found the top five needs of a man and the top five needs of a woman. And I do it every time I do premarital counseling, and I've done it here four years ago. And, and, but, but what he does in that context is basically, as he looks at men and looks at women, discover the top five needs of each. Now, I use it in a broader context in premarital counseling and say there are seven things necessary to have a godly foundation and have a biblical marriage. And I walk through all seven. This one specifically is a willingness to meet one another's needs. I hear couples all the time saying, look, honey, this is 50-50 deal here. Let's compromise. You give, I'll give a little bit, and hopefully we'll get through life. And I always say to them, what you want, what you really want, you want to go into this marriage giving 100% of yourself, expecting nothing in return, knowing you're engaged or going to marry someone who is going into it giving 100% of themselves, expecting nothing in return. Now you decide. You want a 50-50 marriage or a 200% marriage? It's up to you. Well, then the confines of this, Harley basically said, these are the top five needs of a guy. So, gals, if you're going to go into this giving 100%, you need to understand what they are. And, guys, if you're going into this giving 100% of your, yourself into this relationship and you want to make it work for a lifetime, you need to understand what they are. Now, for everybody, the list is different. Sometimes it, number one is number four for some and vice versa. But I've been doing this for a long time, and I ask the couple when I've done, is this true, basically? And every single one of them said, yes. Pretty much so it is, and they'll adjust the list, but it's pretty much the same. Now, I can't do on a Sunday morning what I would normally do in the context of that premarital process because I've got a lot of diversity in the room, and I've got some kids in the room, so I want to be sensitive and tender to that. But the number one need of a man is sexual fulfillment. Number one need of a woman is romance and affection. And they're miles apart. I'd say it a whole lot different when it comes in the context of having a room that is a little bit smaller and not sure of who's in the room. But they are so many miles apart. Guys usually go into it with one thing in mind. Girls don't even care about that as much as that attention and affection that comes along with that. And the longer we go in the process, the less it's important to them. It's always important to the guy. And it becomes a source of contention because he just doesn't understand what I need. He just doesn't understand how I feel. He only understands one thing and one thing alone. But he doesn't know what I need in this context. Number two for a guy is companionship. Number two for a gal is conversation. He wants someone to do something with. She wants someone to talk to. Now, it's not always the same with every couple. But in most cases, guys don't go hunting together so they can share their inner feelings. And if they do go hunting together and share their inner feelings, or at least one of them does, he's not invited next year on a hunting trip. <laughs> I mean, guys just don't do that. We should. We're supposed to. We just don't, unfortunately. What Harley does in the subtitle of the book is How to Build an Affair-Proof Marriage, which is really a fascinating twist in all five of these, but he specifically talks in this area. He said, guys, mostly what you're looking for is just some guys to do stuff with. So you go hunting, fishing, boating, bowling, whatever that may be, and Gals, you don't care whether we do that stuff. We want to share, want to talk, and so we find some gals that like to do that, and we do that together. The problem occurs when in this context over here, the guys are all doing their own thing together. In the middle of that comes this gal, and the guy says, I wish my wife would do this. I wish my wife liked to do some of the stuff that you obviously like to do that I really like to do, and you're going down a train or a track that you cannot turn around from if you're not careful. And the gals over here enjoying conversation together, sharing stuff together. They love to talk about what's going on in their life. And then all of a sudden comes Mr. Charming into that circle. And he loves to talk and loves to share and is sharing his stuff. And the gal said, man, I wish my husband would share the stuff that you're sharing here today. He just doesn't talk at all. 
And again, you're jumping on a train that's going down the wrong track. And if you're not guarding that, it's no return. But sadly enough, we don't get it. Now, it doesn't mean every girl has to do all the stuff that this guy likes to do. Good night. Just find some things that are common. My wife wouldn't kill an animal to save her soul. We had a mouse underneath a cabinet in one of our houses. I had to catch it and release it into the wild. <laughs> but she loves to shoot. She loves to, you know, do those kind of things. We, we find what's in common. And gals or guys, I just want to tell you, what she needs is not somebody to come home whose final three little words in the day is, huh? Okay. Everything all right? Yep. I mean, when you come home at the end of the day and she asks you how your day was, and you said, okay, anything happened? Nope. Everything all right? Yeah. Those are not the three little words she was looking for. She wants to know what's going on in your life. If we really want to invest time into the relationship, we need to understand one another and find out how it makes one another tick. And boy, we're going to talk more about that next week. Number three for a gal is an attractive wife, or for a guy is an attractive wife. <laughs> yeah, I know. That is a whole nother sermon. <laughs> Number three for the guy is an attractive wife. I know that shows how shallow we are. Like, you didn't know that. <laughs> but we are. And the worst thing a gal can do is say, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Or go to one of those two extremes that I shared a moment ago. Number three need for a gal, Honesty. And the worst thing you can do is lie. And one of the best things guys do is lie. Number four for, I don't know what all your blanks are. I want to make sure I have them. Number four for the guy is domestic support. For the girl is financial support. <laughs> I did this in a sermon years ago in my last church. An 80-year-old woman, when I got to domestic support, stood up in the middle of the sermon and said, all he wants us to do is to pick up where his mom left off. Pretty much true. <laughs> and for the gal, she wants to know where we are. Are we okay? Are things okay? Are, are, are the finances solid? And guys, what is our answer to that? Yep. <laughs> sure. Got enough insurance? Oh, sure. Oh, I hope so. I don't. And number five for the gal, for the guy is admiration. And I'll talk about that in a second. And for her is family commitment. He, wants to, he needs the wind put back into sails because everything else in life takes it away. And she wants to know that her and the kids are much more important than your career. You get them out of line. If it's not God first, your mate second, your children third, and everything else that comes underneath that, you get any of that out of line, you're in trouble. I mean real trouble. God says here in his word very clearly that there's something much more valuable than what we see on the outside as a gentle and quiet spirit. He's only three times in the New Testament, two of them referring to Christ. Talks about his gentleness, and obviously we know he's powerful and confident in who he was, but it was how he displayed it. It's another reminder that nagging and demanding our way through life doesn't work. You cannot make your man feel lifted up by constantly putting him down. You cannot make your man feel lifted up by constantly putting him down. Highlight that in your sermon notes, because that is unbelievably true. Or thinking that he's <laughs> that everything he does is stupid or doesn't make sense. Most of what we do doesn't make sense. But encouragement is so much more effective than why would you do it that way? 
<laughs> I, had, I had a guy who got married a little later in life. He came to me one day after the marriage, and I said, how's it going? He said, I had no idea how stupid I was. <laughs> I don't know how I ever survived in life because she came into the marriage and came into the, the home we were living in and said, why would you have done that? How did you ever live like this for this many years? How did you ever survive with that there? And the list was endless, and he said, I had no idea how I ever survived on my own because of all the things she kept saying. Now, quiet doesn't mean you can't say a word, not at all. It refers to your spirit, not the words. It's how things are said and where they come from. Does that mean a wife can't be assertive? Of course not. The issue always is how we do it and what we say. Can you get your way by demanding it or get your point across by raising your voice? Sure. God says, I just want to tell you that the one I value the most is the gentle approach. It's a whole lot more effective than nagging and put-downs and trying to make them feel how stupid they are or what doesn't make sense or why would you do it that way. The one that works the best, that God says, not me because I've done all the research, the one that God says works best is the gentle and quiet spirit that values and lifts up and not puts down. Now, ladies, right about now, you should be thinking, all right, I get it. Stop demanding. Stop yelling. Start encouraging. What about him, though? I mean, what is he supposed to do? I'm glad you ask. Because guess who I'm talking to next Sunday? The husbands. Be here. Because I know where you live. <laughs> please, please, please don't miss it. In these last three weeks in preparation, I have, I've discovered more incredible things that Peter tells us in five verses in many cases than I've ever seen before, but I think are absolutely perfect for us to understand how to live marriage as God designed it. And I've got to finish it with you next week, so please, please come back. On Sunday morning, I shared with you a video clip about Weekend to Remember. And it's something Family Life Ministries has done for years. There's two of them coming up in our area. And I want to show it to you this morning, uh, this one specifically, because of what she says. And then I'll come back and pull it all together. We walked into marriage with difficulties. Our relationship was dysfunctional before we were married. And coming from a home where marriage wasn't modeled for me, um, I didn't know how to do marriage. It, it, it was really hard. I didn't, I didn't know what to do with a lot of the things that were coming up. We would get into surface level arguments that would really quickly turn into just full blown, you know, explosions. The intimacy had been so broken for so long that there was no connection anymore. And in my mind, it can never be repaired. I went to a counseling session only because I wanted to be able to say that I went. And um, went and sat in this office of this counselor, just he and I, we were alone. And he just asked me if I believed that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. You know, just looked at me very intently and said, Star, do you believe it? And I said, yes, I believe it. But you don't think he can heal your marriage? And I just started to wonder, what if he could? What if he could do it? What if he could give us what I had always wanted? And shortly after that was when Weekend to Remember came into play. It, it, was, it wasn't just a bunch of talking heads up there for the whole weekend. They gave us things to work on, and they also gave us time during the weekend to actually put them into practice. The conference was huge for me. I came from a home where people got divorced when it was too hard, and I had never in my life heard the things that I was hearing. I had never heard that God had a plan 
my marriage. And so to be able to see that he had actually taken the time to give me instruction on how to do this that really worked was life-changing for me. God is in the business of life change and of raising dead things. And our marriage was dead and now it's alive. So sorry that I've gone so long. Just remember, the game is tomorrow night and the race is in Phoenix. You've got plenty of time this afternoon. <laughs> I love what I do. Uh, hopefully it shows. I love what I do. One of the most difficult parts of what I do for a living is when couples come to me at the very end of dissolving their relationship and say, is there anything you can do? want to explode inside because I don't know what I can do at that moment. But couple after couple after couple have come to me down through the years and have said, we, we've applied for divorce. We're meeting with a lawyer tomorrow. Just wanted you to know. Anything you can do, that'd be great. And that's just such a difficult time to walk into that relationship. So my encouragement would be whatever you can do, Whatever we offer, whether it's one of these or Christian counseling that I can set you up with tomorrow, whatever that may be, take advantage of that. She said a powerful statement, and that's really a, a critical statement. If you really do believe that Jesus Christ was raised by the power of God from the dead, how can you not believe that that same power can raise your dead marriage and bring it back to life? That is absolutely true. I hope you're there in that you have a marriage that you love and enjoy you can't wait to pass it along to the next generation. If you're not, we'd love to help you. There's some great resources. Ted's going to be out there this morning at the end of this one to give out some brochures about Weekend to Remember. If you need Christian counseling, let us know. We'd be happy to hook you up with that. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for all of your grace, all of your tenderness, all of your word. It is so unbelievably powerful that you can indeed offer us life forever. But you can give us a wonderful incredible marriage now. And so we ask that you'll do that uh, for those that are struggling. Thank you again for all the resources you provide for us and the power of your word that lives on forever. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for your incredibly kind attention today. Hey, if you're looking for a missions trip opportunity, Dominican Republic, right over there in that corner. Please take advantage of that. me.